Coming up this hour, we're talking politics. We're talking Steve Bannon. We're talking California. We're talking Jerry Falwell Jr. And that's just the first segment. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We're going to begin with a little rapid-fire style type of current headlines in a minute. So uh, go ahead and strap in for that. But real briefly, we're on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast, you would not mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing. That all helps us out a whole bunch. And we're really grateful for all of you who have done so already. Brian, it's, uh, it's not Friday. Nope. It's not your beloved hump day. It is, at least it had historically been my date night day, which has moved around a number of times since the pandemic. But... It's just sort of like, eh, but, but I will, I will say this though, all that considered, it is national radio day. Happy How national radio day. Is. Yes. <laughs> we should have gotten each other a card. Happy national radio day. I, I do have to give you and everyone a warning in advance today. I went to Portillo's with a buddy today for the first time since the pandemic. So it's been a while. Uh, and my body was not ready for Portillo's. I need a nap. I needed. I might just fall asleep while doing the show because uh, after you haven't had Portillo's and then you go full Italian beef, uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm a little full right now. So uh, be be uh, be ready for that. You're you're a true warrior, Brian Fromm. I had uh, a first had Italian beef, and I I am down for the count. Uh, all right, so here's what we're gonna do. We got a couple of rapid fire headlines I want to tackle, and then I'm gonna end with one that we'll spend a little more time talking about. But okay. why don't you kick us off? Yeah, if anybody was watching uh, the news or sports last night and saw uh, well-known play-by-play announcer Tom Brenneman uh, get caught on a hot mic on a Cincinnati Reds broadcast last night uh, uh, with a homophobic slur, uh, and uh, it was amazing almost in real time to watch a 30-year, very storied career basically go out the window. Uh, probably uh, most people, some people would argue with this, but... Um, you know, he probably deserves it because, you know, as an announcer, that that word for him came out of somewhere and you just got you can't do that. And so he immediately apologized on air while the game was going on and then was suspended during the game. It was surreal to watch. Uh, but a very famous announcer, a film, former Cubs announcer, Tom Brenneman, his career may have gone up a 30 year career in the matter of seconds last night. That was bizarre. Speaking of bizarre. Here out of CNN, but really everyone's covering it right now. Steve Bannon and three others charged with fraud in border wall fundraising campaign. Did you see this one flown around? I did this morning, right? Like they, it, this just reminds me, right? Um, the Republicans in the last election, President Trump ran on drain the swamp. And you're just reminded that this swamp knows no party lines is really what it comes yeah, down right. to. And so former pres- uh, advisor to the president, Steve Bannon, and three others were prosecuted and arrested with defrauding donors of hundreds of thousands of dollars as part of a campaign fundraiser fundraising purportedly aimed at supporting Trump's border wall. So it's just a dirty story. You read it, uh, and people were profiting off of the um, off the donations of people who thought they were giving to something, namely the, uh, the funding of a border wall, and it was just a kind of a scam. And so once again, you're reminded of uh, oftentimes uh, on both sides of the aisle, the people working in politics, uh, sadly, uh, oftentimes are doing pretty dirty things. All right, so let's talk about this uh, Fallwell video that a couple of people have been sharing. Around. How would you des- how would you describe this video, Brian? 
cringeworthy and disturbing. How is that? And uh, I would encourage or maybe not encourage people to go check it out. But Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, the what is he currently suspended uh, uh, president of Liberty University? A uh, a uh, video came out of Falwell in a weight room uh, using using the weights to pelvic thrust is the only way I could say it in front of college students and making jokes and giggling. It was really weird. I guess that's how I would describe it is weird. Uh, but yeah, that's story- not, it, it wasn't just in front of students. They had, they had the bar across True. his midsection and it had uh, two females stand on either side. Good point. Good point. While he thrust it. I, I feel like good point. Feel like without that added detail, again, I'm not sure either of us have ever said, pelvic thrusted on the show before that's, right. that's unfortunate but, but uh it's just disturbing and and there was another story that came out that either that video or a similar video Falwell showed it in chapel at liberty and made a joke about his own wife like again i mean it's like a weekly basis right now where we go how can this guy still be the president of the largest uh evangelical college in the country it's just disturbing it's not it's beyond disappointing now and the guy's got to go that's my opinion yeah, and it does sort of show, I guess, how untouchable he seems to think that he is. Otherwise, well, whatever. Why is it even worth trying to crawl into his Not brain? All right, this one, I don't have a lot to add to it, but uh, I didn't really know about it till this morning. Uh, Bay Area firestorm sends thousands fleeing and cause dangerous air quality. Did you see some of the videos that were coming out of people like filming from their car as they were fleeing? It's unbelievable. I saw it on the Today Show this morning. And every year when it's like fire season and you see these where it literally looks like cars are driving into the fire trying to get out. It's just crazy. And so prayers out for the many people in Northern California who every year are fighting these fires. And uh, it's going on again. And so if you don't know about them, I'd encourage you to look it up. But also be praying and uh, be thinking about those who are being affected right now. So talk to us a little bit about the uh, Flint water crisis. This is one, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm from Michigan. Right. So this is, uh, this is a topic that's been, been close to my heart for a while. I have two brothers who are lawyers, so they're right? much more articulate and educated in this, uh, the complexities of this story. But the headline simply reads, Flint water crisis legal settlement totals $600 million and creates victim compensation fund. Can you give us just a, a brief flyover there? Yeah, it's just an unbelievable story if people are unaware and of everything that you said there, you being from Michigan and stuff, you probably know a lot more of this story than I do. But Flint, uh, the, the city of Flint, Michigan, has just basically had dangerously undrinkable water for I don't even know how long now, but it's drinking water with toxic lead and contamination. And it's just a story that should be a national outrage and you just never really hear about it. And so at least some money is going towards the people. It says here, especially younger residents would be eligible for payments from a victim compensation fund under a $600 million preliminary settlement. Uh, But this story, it does feel it's almost odd that it hasn't gotten more press because, and there's lots of reasons for that. Some people will look racial, they'll look socioeconomic, uh, but it's a, it's a tragic story in which an entire big city in our country basically has undrinkable water. So at least now there's a settlement that hopefully will help people who have been affected. It, it, it's nuts. We don't have the time to get into it right now, but it, I mean, it's years, years and years has been going on. People have made documentaries about it. It is ridiculous. I'd love to know yeah. what people think about this and if this is even close to enough. And then I'll, the last minute and a half, here's out of Christian headlines. Pasadena threatens church members with one year of jail for mm-hmm. attending indoor service. The city of Pasadena, California is threatening a local church with fines, jail, and even closure for violating government restrictions, prohibiting Indoor worship service, the congregation Harvest Church filed a lawsuit in July against the state of California, 
over the restrictions and has continued to meet indoors. The suit said the attendees are required to wear masks and that seats are configured so people are socially distanced. Temperatures are also taken when individuals enter the building, according to the suit. Last week, Pasadena's chief assistant city prosecutor sent Harvest Church pastor Shay on a letter threatening fines and up to one year in jail for anyone who attends a future service. The letter also threatens, quote, potential closure of your church. What do you think of this one, Brian? Yeah, I, I do get what cities are trying to do, but this feels way over the top. And like you're just getting a fight right now. Right. And I would I would wonder it doesn't say it in the article. Does everybody get these, whether uh, wherever there's congregations going on right now? And also, uh, but I do want churches out there, if you're leading a church, to just be smart, okay? Like, we do have a little bit more freedom than others to organize. But use masks, use social distancing, follow the guidelines. Don't be the person, in my opinion, who's trying to pick a fight uh, and trying to make a point. But, yeah, this feels over the top to me at first blush. And uh, I would hope that it's being done out of an abundance of caution rather than trying to pick a fight here. But you'd never do know. Well, and I would recommend to you, I don't know if you've heard it yet. Uh, Andy Stanley's message from last weekend. I did I not. It was called something like not in it to win it. Uh, and it was essentially an entire sermon about their decision to uh, close their buildings until January. Really? Whether you're pro or against or somewhere in between, go take 30 minutes to listen to his message on this topic. Awesome. It is fantastic i can't recommend it enough i I might even mention it again on the show coming up next though a headline simply reads making the poor a priority isn't political it's the gospel the pope says that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good happy national radio day to you all fine people i think that applies even to the podcast listeners this is first a radio show and then a, a podcast so by proxy you get to celebrate as well. My uh, my card is already in the mail to you, Brian, but you did already confess that you, you didn't get me one. That's okay. That's all right. I'll get over that eventually. Next year. Next year. Next. Yeah, we'll get them next year. Uh, <laughs> real quickly, if you want to find us on Facebook, you can. The Common Good Radio Show. We're also podcasted, as I mentioned. And if you're the podcasting type, when you finish this episode, perhaps, maybe subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does help us out a whole ton. And we're super grateful for everyone who has done that already. Saw this. This is just from yesterday, it looks like. Making the poor a priority isn't political. It's the gospel, the Pope says. This is out of, what is this actually called? National Catholic Reporter, the independent news source. Uh, I don't know that I've read much from here. And I think we have some Catholic news later in the show as well. But uh, why don't you get us into this? Yeah, it's uh, interesting from Vatican City. Church teaching on giving priority to the well-being of the poor and the marginalized is not a political or ideological choice. It lies at the very heart of the gospel, Pope Francis said. The preferential option for the poor, which includes feeding the hungry and drawing close to the excluded, quote, is the key criterion of Christian authenticity, he said August 19th during his weekly general audience. The principal also would include making sure that any vaccine developed for the novel coronavirus helps everyone. He added, it would be sad if priority for a vaccine were to be given to the richest. It would be sad if this vaccine were to become the prior, uh, property of this nation or another rather than universal and for all. So let me just stop there. He has a lot more to go that we will get into that. Um, Ian, I'm curious what you think about Pope Francis quote there that uh uh, that preferential option for the poor is, quote, the cr- key criterion of Christian authenticity. What do you think about that statement? I mean, I would be hard pressed to find someone that could argue against that, mm-hmm. to be honest. I don't I don't know. You could throw a rock at any of Jesus's teachings and find something close to that 
principle somewhere, somewhere. Like it's, it's bizarre to me that even statements like that have become a little sensational and most certainly, unfortunately, divisive. Like that's, that's bizarre. I, I obviously, I think part of why we see so much division is we disagree on maybe the methodology and that tends to be where a lot of us get stuck. But uh, yeah, preferential option for the poor. Gosh, like I, how would you defend against that? Like if you let's let's play a game. You're, let's pretend <laughs> you completely disagree with this. Uh, play a character that would ar- argue with that with that sentiment. I love when you let me play. We 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 went away from <laughs> devil's advocate, but I'll give it to you anyway. Uh, so it goes like this: the key criterion for Christianity is actually uh, my own relationship with Jesus. It is uh, it is my being connected. It is praying a prayer. It is, uh, it's not based on what I do and how I treat, not how I treat other people. I have the wrong way to put it, but what I do. Um, and Jesus doesn't give preference to anybody. He loves everybody the same. And so to say preferential treatment, uh, there shouldn't be preferential treatment for the rich, the poor, the black, the white, uh, male, female. Uh, we don't speak in preferential treatment. How about that? I don't really believe any of what I just said, but what would you say to that? <laughs> no, you that's true. Your game? I, I just your wanted game, all of, how would you respond? I wanted all of that for the soundbite, just so I can play <laughs> that back in the future. Like, listen to Brian's theology. No, I, I mean, I, I think even you'd have to look no further than like Philippians 2, right, where we're having, we're charged to get, have the same mind as Christ, who didn't consider equality with God something to like hold on to. He empties himself, pours himself out, becomes a servant, is obedient, not just to death, but death on a cross. Like it shows over and over again, like Jesus wasn't interested in climbing some kind of corporate ladder. He's constantly saying, uh, if you want to be great, become least. If you want to be highest, get lowest. And uh, he talks about the poor. He talks about children. He talks about the marginalized and the exploited and the vulnerable. And that's not just Jesus. I mean, that's a great starting point, but I feel like the Bible is just rich with that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I'd be hard pressed to make a really intelligent argument against it. But I want to get to a little bit more of what he said here because um, it says, in fact, he said a proper response to the pandemic is twofold. On the one hand, it is essential to find a cure for this small but terrible virus, which has brought the whole world to its knees. On the other hand, we must also cure a larger virus, that of social injustice, inequality of opportunity, marginalization, and the lack of protection for the weakest. It would be a scandal if all the economic assistance we are observing most of it with public money, were to focus on rescuing those in industries that do not contribute to the inclusion of the excluded, the promotion of the least, the common good, or the care of creation, the Pope said. These are the four criteria that should be used for choosing which industries should be helped. Those who contribute to the inclusion of the excluded, to the promotion of the least, to the common good, and the care of creation. I'd love to, think, I'd love to know what you think of those kind of four categories that he references. Yeah, they they are they they sound pretty biblical, especially you know looking out for the least of these. I mean, Jesus famously says that, right? And so, um, it is interesting to start thinking about this in terms of okay, what does it look like for me as an individual to to embody this, to believe this? Then, what does it look like for my church? Okay, what's it look like for my church? It gets to a whole other level when we go: Is this how nations should operate? Uh, and I do think that's what he's saying. I think the Pope believes that we need to have national systems that uh, that elevate the poor and do that. And so each of these are their own conversation, right? Like, what's it look like for me as an individual? What does it look like for us as a church? And what is, is should this be, let's put it this way, should this 
guide how I vote? Should this be the lens through which I decide on a candidate coming up because I want to see a country that shows preferential treatment to the poor? Uh, should I only look to um, support businesses that are helping the poor instead of taking in profits? The, the, how you live this out becomes very interesting. But I, I think this pope uh, has been very clear since the day he became the pope in in this exact message. He is uh, he has stood for the poor, uh, I think, really, since day one uh, of being the pope. Well, let me just read a little more from the article because I think it's I think it's really powerful. He said, Jesus stood among the sick, the poor, the excluded, showing them God's merciful love. The preferential option for the poor is a duty for all Christians and communities, he said, and it means doing more than providing needed assistance. It requires remedying the root causes and problems that lead to the need for aid. So now he's getting after systemic injustice, which makes a lot mm-hmm. of people uncomfortable. Many people want to return to normality and get back to business, the Pope said, but this Normality must not entail ongoing social injustice and the degradation of the environment. The pandemic is a crisis and we do not emerge from a crisis the same as before. Either we come out of it better or we come out of it worse. We must come out of it better and build something different. The world needs an economy and remedies that do not poison societies such as profits not linked to the creation of dignified jobs, but rather profits that benefit the general public. We must act now to heal the epidemics caused by small invisible viruses and to heal those caused by the great invisible social injustices by starting from the love of God, placing the peripheries at the center and the last and the first, he said, a healthier world will be possible. Recovering from the pandemic will require action rooted in tangible love. I love that phrase anchored in hope and founded in faith. Otherwise, we will come out of this crisis worse. The Pope concluded by saying, may the Lord help us and give us the strength to come out of it better, responding to the needs of today's world. I I don't know Hmm. how that strikes you, but that that to me, I just found incredibly powerful. It is. And but the the uncomfortable part is, uh, again, I think the Pope is really, like you said, pushing against some of the systems that are kind of ingrained into our country and other countries. And so how the Catholic church, let's say of the United States wrestles with the Pope's words here, I think probably makes for some very interesting discussions, I'm sure. But I I have always respected and admired how this Pope is constantly calling the church back, calling people back to a love for the marginalized and wanting to tackle these hard questions that I'm sure he gets a lot of blowback for. So uh, yeah, I, I do very much appreciate that about him. Yeah, and I, I guess that's probably the cost of leadership, and he's maybe no stranger to blowback. But either way, as always, this is posted on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. What do you agree with? What, like Brian said, would you push back on? What other alternative options would you provide? We know that topics like this are are really controversial, but I think they're they're really, really needed. And so all of that is over on our Facebook page. Speaking of Facebook, I saw a post yesterday that kind of challenges this common phrase that we hear a lot these days. You are enough. We're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. It is not only National uh, Radio Day. Oh, my goodness. It's another day. Did you know this? National Chocolate Pecan Pie Day? No, I did not. I'm not even entirely sure I knew that there was chocolate pecan pie. (laughs) That's a good point. I also realized I just said pecan. Do I say pecan or pecan? What do you say? Uh, I say pecan. I had to think about that for a second, but I, I, yeah, I, don't, I, know, I don't know how I feel about that. It's what came out naturally, but I, I don't know that I approve of it. I might, I might change the way that I say that on purpose. Cause I don't know that I, 
I don't know that I like that. Anyway, we're moving <laughs> on. Uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get podcasts. And if you're watching, watching. If you're listening, if you're watching right now, what are you watching? Because we don't have anything that you can watch. But if you are listening, you can subscribe, rate, and review even while you listen. And that would be super helpful for us, especially we know everyone's uh, kind of in the podcast world right now. Everyone seems to be launching a podcast. So any any level of interaction helps us out a whole ton, and we're super grateful for that. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. There's a whole bunch of fun stuff happening over there. And we don't we haven't done this in a while. We tend to stick predominantly to like actual publications and articles and maybe blogs. But every once in a while I come across a uh, a Facebook post that I find to be intriguing. And I don't have like a like an agenda or a direction for this segment. I just kinda wanna read it to you, Brian, yep. and uh and see how you feel about it. Does that sound fair? I like it. Yep. Then I'll ask you to play devil's advocate. Here we go. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so Becca Burbaum yesterday, uh, 6.47 a.m. She wrote this. When I hear, quote, you are enough, I wonder for what? For the demands of parenting? No, I am not enough. I need wisdom that I don't currently have. I need physical help sometimes when my body is tired. I need emotional support when I am weary. For my marriage? No. I'm not enough. I need the voices of trusted friends to remind me what we're shooting for. I need my spouse to help me understand how I hurt him. For the ideas I have to make, the, the, for the ideas that I have to make the world better, no, I'm not enough. I've learned that striving is unhelpful and ineffective. It's when I receive God's invitations to me and step in with humility and wonder that things are really transformed. I need my community to help me and practice this with me. I need to receive friends. Instead of being told that I am, quote, enough, I'd love to be reminded that I am insufficient on my own, mm. accepted, not alone, loved, part of something bigger than myself. I'll just stop right there and ask your thoughts. Yeah, it's I really appreciate those words because uh, we preach that, right, that, that it's not that we are enough, but that Jesus is enough and, and that that's where our hope is. Uh, but that is the common refrain. And when I think when we say you're enough to ourselves or to one another, what we're saying is uh, you don't have to be more. But but she's she she's getting at a really important point here is that when we say to ourselves, you're not enough, but then we come up against things constantly going, I'm not enough. I'm, I can't change the world, as she said, or, you know, I keep messing up in my parenting or blowing up or whatever else. Uh her thing here about going, you know what? I'm accepted. I'm not alone. I'm loved. I might be in, I'm insufficient and part of something bigger. It draws us back uh, to our hope being in Christ and also our need for community, our need for our brothers and sisters in Christ around us, as opposed to going, Hey, I have everything that I need to do this life. Cause I think in practice, we all know that we don't have everything we need. And the Bible over and over again tells us we don't have everything that we need it within ourselves. But yet we live that way and we tell each other those messages. And so uh, it's powerful. These are words that I certainly agree with and have a very hard time uh, living out and internalizing. Mm. And so, yeah, these are this is powerful. I'm, I'm well, uh, I'm very thankful uh, for these words. I'd be curious to know if, if you think there's an important distinction. Use the phrase that I have the things I need or that I have enough having enough and being enough are two different things. So I wonder if they're, hmm. and again, now at this point we're talking semantics, but I think some of the pushback often is that if we are heavy handed in a Christian message that you're awful, you're nothing, you'll never be enough apart from Jesus, that, that sometimes that can feel 
in some circles, in some environments, in some ways, through some methodologies, manipulative. Like, oh, you're just beating people down and then just offering them a way out. That's not what I think she is doing at all. And I think it's actually a beautiful sentiment because, you know, a lot of people are championing the you are enough sentiment right now with good reason. And I think part of what you touched on, like letting people know, like, hey, you don't have to be any more than what you are. The the house doesn't have to always be sparkling or you don't always have to be nailing it at work or all your relationships don't have to be up and to the right. You don't have to, you know, constantly be more fit than you were the day before, especially in a pandemic. You know, how do you differentiate some of the you are enough versus you aren't enough and you have enough or you don't have enough. Therefore, you need these people and these resources in the relationships so that you have enough. How, how do you separate sort of the what I have versus who I am? Well, that is a deep question, man. That is really good. Uh, I think off the top of my head, I would go with um, w- we get ourselves in trouble when we think, and I get why people say it. I get the whole you you are enough, where that comes from. It's you don't have to keep looking to other people and striving to be like them. You, you're you're good enough. You know, it's the old Stuart Smalley thing. Um, I'm not really answering your question here, except to say. Um, <laughs> it becomes the, the other side of that coin becomes so difficult because then when we fail, right. When I, when I snap at my children or when uh, I'm uh, I, I'm not uh, the husband that I, that I know that I should be, or uh, when I'm not killing it at work or whatever, you go, well, if this is all that I am, then I'm not. A, and, and that can become uh, we could just run downhill with that. And so I do think, yeah, I'm, I'm just wrestling with this because it is, uh, her question too, when I hear enough for what is, is a really interesting question. So how would you answer that? Your be enough versus that was a good question. I'm going to have to chew on that, which is a hard thing to do on the radio. So how would you wrestle with that? <laughs> yeah, I, I knew you were going to do that. And I don't think I have a good answer. I, I think part of what trips us up is that we believe at some level that I need to do certain things in order to earn God's favor or affection, or maybe if you're not a God person to do these things in order to earn the right to have good friends or to have a day off or to create space. So to that, end, I would say you don't actually have to be enough. Like you are worthy of love that God's grace is unmerited favor. It's not something that you earn or that you do to become enough. So to that degree, I would say, no, 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 there's no more ladder that you have to climb there for any of that to be owed to you are, you are worthy of love. You, you are forgiven. Like all those things to me mm-hmm. in Christ Jesus are things that, uh, are what I think is so important about preaching grace consistently. But I can also see how the perpetual you are enough mantra can create a pseudo isolationism. Like, well, I'm enough. So I don't need, I don't need to read from nobody. I don't need relationships. I don't need advice. podcast. I don't need prayer. I don't, you know, and maybe ultimately you say, well, I don't even really need God because I, I am enough. I don't think that's necessarily, or even typically what people are meaning when they say that. But I think part of what Beck is getting after here, which is really helpful is saying, yeah, for what? Like asking the deeper question, you are enough feels great on the surface, yeah. but does that potentially lead to some dangerous areas where we already have this like hyper individualism in our country anyway, does this in some ways kind of perpetuate the myth that like, I don't, I don't need anyone or anything. And she's saying, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. Right. Actually, your marriage will suffer. Uh, your parenting will suffer. Your career will suffer. If if you try and do all of that on your own because you're, quote, enough, 
you're going to miss out on a lot of the sweetness of life. And I think hmm. maybe not to put words in her mouth, but just maybe that's a little bit of what she was getting after. And personally, I thought it was really, really convicting and a, a really timely, timely word and done so in a way that was like gentle and pastoral and wise and not knocking people for saying it, but like inviting them to maybe see things in a little bit of a different way, which personally, I really appreciate. Here's a uh, an article coming up next by Craig Greenfield at Outreach Magazine, and his headline simply reads, Canceled Mission Trips Give Us an Opportunity for Self-Reflection. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I apparently say it, pecan. I, I've been thinking about it a lot, Brian, and I think it's I think it's pecan for me. I'm not... Uh, not proud of that, but I'm I'm sticking with it. I'm just gonna I'm gonna embrace. You know what, Brian? I'm enough. I'm, I'm enough. <laughs> <laughs> People who just tuned in, like- National Chocolate Pecan Pie Day. I did not realize that was even a thing, but uh, yeah, I got an article here, Brian, out of uh, Outreach Magazine by Craig Greenfield, and he he's someone who writes about international missions and missions work a lot and okay. his background experience i think speaks to that and he he's got a headline that simply reads canceled mission trips give us an opportunity for self-reflection why don't you get us into it a little bit yeah he says with much of the world in various stages of lockdown short-term mission trips have become one of the first summer casualties planes are grounded airports are quiet and the folks who print all those matching mission trip t-shirts are wondering when business will pick up again printed many of those shirts in my day Uh, But I, for one, am grateful someone hit the pause button on short-term mission trips, he says, because it gives our churches a chance to reflect on how disconnected our missional practice may be from our everyday lives as followers of Jesus. I'm convinced that each and every overseas trip must be rooted in a day-to-day lifestyle of local mission. Every Mm. church and every believer must grapple with this challenge. Otherwise, our mission trips become a two-week jaunt that bears zero relation to the rest of our year and our vocation as Christ followers. This year, he writes, I believe Jesus is inviting us to consider a greater degree of integrity between our daily lives and our occasional overseas missions practices. One of the dangers of the way our minds work is that we have a tendency to romanticize the poor who are geographically distant and demonize the poor on our own doorsteps. It's a coping mechanism designed to keep the poor mostly at arm's length so that we can help them in small doses without too much cost to our everyday lives. Mm. Uh, And then he gives some examples, he says. But then he says, since all mission trips are canceled anyway this year, how about we take that time to reflect on these three invitations to go deeper in our missional practice? Perhaps by strengthening these foundations, we'll be in a much better position to consider traveling abroad next year. And so he's going to give three. But man, I I read this article before the show, and I, uh, for me, uh, I... I totally uh, get what he's saying. And at the same time, know the role that the short-term mission trip has played for me, for the ministries I've led, for me as a high schooler back in the day. Uh, So I would never want to do away with those. But I think what he's saying is we've got to think through some of these foundations uh, to build upon these short-term trips and then take the short-term trips off of these foundations. I don't think he's saying do away with them, but I think he's saying uh, without these foundations, they could do more harm than good. Well, I had a professor who then became a mentor and a friend. He's actually been on the show with his wife, Dr. Dave Sanders, Dave and Debbie Sanders. They were wonderful. And he taught a class, I think it was called Missions and Evangelism, where he really kind of pushed back on some of the traditional uh, conventional methodologies and 
rationales behind short-term mission trips. And, you know, my alma mater, Judson, still uh, sends a number of them out, and they yep. do a wonderful job. And one of the things, one of the key kind of points that he always was kind of driving home is that we keep hopping on these planes thinking that we are there to save them, right? Like, yeah. hey, everyone, you can take it easy. We're here to paint your school again for the 40th time, or we're here <laughs> going to run BBS for a week and take care of your village. He's like, no, no, no. The posture needs to be that of learner. Like, if, we, if we're not willing to actually learn from these communities and uh, be taught by them and be shaped by them, then, you know, in his mind, I think the money would be better spent just sending them a check so that they can, you know, better resource their community. And I always thought that was interesting. And the other thing yeah. that Craig kind of gets after here a little bit is, um, is some of what Pope Francis was saying two segments ago about some of the systemic stuff that we need to look back. I remember, I think it was Dom Camara, I think, who said something like, when I when I gave food to the poor, they called me a saint. But when I actually asked why they are poor, they called me a communist. Like <laughs> that's sort of what Craig's yeah. saying. He's like, yeah, we we can sort of pat ourselves on the back for hopping on a plane for seven days, ten days. And I'm with you. I mean, mission trips have been a really formative part yeah. of my my own growth, and I've probably done a number of them poorly with the wrong intent the wrong motivation, yep. ill-prepared, and, and God still used those things to kind of shape me. But I, I have never been able to shake the sense that, like, I mean, I raised a lot of money to, like, hop on a plane for 10 days. That could have bought them a ton of food or built a ton of shelters or medical supplies or any of those things. And I'd be, I'd be, curious, I'd be curious to know how you kind of, like, navigate some of that tension. You know, money better spent just sent or how do you put a dollar amount on the experience, you know, how do you really measure even the ROI of an experience? Like, how do you, how do you sort of walk that line? I think the answer to that is uh, it's not the effect that it has on the people necessarily you're going to serve, but on those that go. And that's what he's getting at here, right? It's got to be done from the right uh, perspective and the right heart. You know, I used to, even when I was a youth pastor, we'd take a trip a year basically. Uh, and I would uh, often tell people, you know, it's going to do more for your student than your, than your student's going to do for these people we're going to. Uh, and some people might go, well, then it's not worth doing. And I think that's a, that's a legitimate conversation to have. But uh, yeah, th another resource out there, who is the author who wrote uh, When Helping Hurts? Is that something like that? When Helping Hurts, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, and about the dangers that short-term trips can do. And uh, I, I think he's right. I do think... Uh, there is this concept of we romanticize helping the person in this third world country and then turning a blind eye towards the homeless guy in our city, uh, I think is something we have to wrestle with. And so he talks about these foundations uh, that I think he's talking about as we get these foundations locally, it puts us in a much better spot to have the right perspective and the right attitude as maybe we then travel globally. Because like you, you went to Judson, I went to Wheaton, Wheaton in many ways. Uh, at the backbone of Wheaton is is overseas missions, right? Like they're sending groups out all the time. Yeah. Um, but but I think people are starting to realize we just can't first world just go over and parachute into the third world countries and think that we're the saviors and then get out of there and everything's great. Like it does, it's much more complex than that. Well, and even the the notion that that you shared about like, hey, the students are going to be more affected than the people that we go to serve. Yep. You know, some would call that like religious tourism. Like, hey, we're going to go and they're going to experience. Yep. They're kind of getting a tour, a taste, and then they're going to come back and they'll be so grateful for what they have. And I think you mentioned the book When Helping Hurts. I would highly recommend that. There's another yep. one that I read in college, Toxic Charity. That one was mm. really really helpful. And I'll I'll just share briefly some of his uh, his challenges here. He says, perhaps by strengthening these foundations, we will be in a much better position to consider traveling abroad next year. Number one, are we practicing hospitality locally? He says radical hospitality 
at its very heart of, is at the very heart of the gospel, which is Jesus defined as good news for the poor. God welcomes us and in turn asks us to welcome others. I think that's always, always a good reminder. Number two, are we advocating for refugee justice? Part of Jesus' call to love our neighbors is the call to advocate for them too. After all, how can we love our neighbors while ignoring the boot of injustice on their neck? That's a great question. I mean, he quotes Bonhoeffer here. I got to read it. Bonhoeffer said, we are not to simply uh, bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Mm. I think that's such a good quote. And then number three, he says, are we grappling with the big picture? If the first invitation above was the invitation to compassion and mercy, it is like the call to rescue those who are drowning in a river. The second invitation is the invitation to travel upriver and address the root cause of people falling into the river in the first place. It's the call to work for justice, Micah 6, 8. And this final invitation is the call to recognize that very often when we travel upriver, we will come face to face with ourselves. I'll stop there. There's a whole lot more. This is posted on our Facebook page, but I'd love to know what do you think of those, those three kind of big but important challenges he, he offers yeah they are big and and again this could leave people going uh you know well then why even do these trips i think it's still okay to do these trips even then you come back and you say how can we still help solve the problems how can we still be helpful number one i think is the most important one for me are we practicing hospitality locally like if, mm-hmm. if like let's say you're a youth pastor and you're not doing anything local to help your kids understand uh, the poverty and the struggles locally around us. But then you're like, hey, but let's go to Mexico and go build houses. You're not really doing them any favors, but instead using that to then help them have a heart to help uh, the downtrodden in the least of these locally. I think then that bears a lot of fruit. So I think that number one is a powerful one. Yeah, and I like how he ends it. He says, let 2020 be a year for missional self-examination. For whatever yeah. reason, the pause button has been pressed on short-term mission trips this year. It's a chance for reflection and to move toward greater integrity in our actions as followers of Jesus. And in doing so, may we discover a renewed, more consistent love for the nations. I thought that was a really great, really timely call. Yeah. Well, the first hour is in the books. Coming up at the top of the next hour, we're going to do a little rapid fire again, but all under the theme of COVID. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're talking COVID, pro-life, digital ethics, and Christmas decorations. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Did you know that we have a bit of a digital presence? A couple of places you can find us. First, Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. Most days, you can also comment on them. You can send us messages. If you have suggestions or feedback or just want to say hi, all of that is fair game. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get your podcast. You can also just tell Alexa. I haven't tried Siri yet, but I'm sure that would be fine. If, uh, if you share or subscribe or rate or like any of those things, all of that does really help us out a whole lot. And uh, we're super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I want to do a little bit of a rapid fire round two, Brian, if that's okay. Not as fiery of a rapid fire. I have only three <laughs> articles. Okay. But, uh, they're all sort of under a theme, if that's okay. And the theme is COVID. Have you heard of it? I, it's, I, somebody mentioned it in my timeline today. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm learning more about it. So this first one from uh, ChristianPost.com says 2,700 evangelicals warn against politicizing coronavirus urge Christians to take vaccine. 
my guess is that for some people, your blood pressure has already gone up a couple notches. So that's all. We're all friends here, right? Let's take a deep breath. And uh, Brian Fromm, why don't you get us into this article by Leonardo Blair? Yep, 2,700 high-profile evangel- evangelicals spanning the fields of science and religion signed onto a statement billed a Christian statement on science for pandemic times, which warns against the politica- politicization, uh, easy for me to say, of the new coronavirus and urges Christians to take appropriate action against it, including taking a vaccine when it's ready. They said, we're deeply concerned about the polarization and politicization of science in the public square when so many lives are at stake. The word science has become a weapon in the culture wars. Sadly, Christians seem just as susceptible to these trends. And so I think that BioLogos is a part of this, Dr. Francis Collins. So these are some big named uh, people. And, you know, I, I would certainly... Uh, want to push our people uh, in our churches and evangelicals as a whole to uh, to fight against, as we've been saying, uh, making this simply a political issue. Uh, this is a pandemic, and we've got to try to find some sort of common ground uh, to fight against this. I know that's asking a lot, but I do feel like the more political this gets, the more politicized this gets, the worst off we are. And so it's good to see, like we said yesterday, a coalition of people, uh, in this case, many scientists coming together. Uh, but the whole vaccine thing, though, all that remains to be seen as this goes along. But the call to try to allow this to not be overly politicized, I think, is a good one. Well, let me read a little later in this article, if you'll allow me. It says a vocal minority of churches also spoke out against calls from federal and local government authorities to close their churches amid the new coronavirus pandemic, risking fines and arrests. We talked about that a little earlier in the show. As recently as Sunday, North Carolina Bishop Patrick uh, Wooden, Sr. of the conservative Upper Room Church of God in Christ in Raleigh, slammed Dr. Anthony S. Fauci. I don't think I knew about the S. Who is <laughs> director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force as a backslidden Catholic and self-professed humanist was being used as a political tool by the left. Do you remember when all this began, by the way, that it felt like conservatives like hoisted Fauci up on their shoulders? Like they were, he was a guy. And then like quickly, it was like whiplash. Like, never mind, he's the devil. And you're like, wow, okay. He goes on, humanists do not believe in prayer. Humanists do not believe that God intervenes. Humanists do not believe that we need help from the Lord at all. That may be one of the reasons he could easily recommend that churches be closed, but he fumbled and waffled when they suggested perhaps protests should be curtailed because they spread the virus, he asserts. The statement acknowledges that while Christians have a valid reason to be skeptical of scientific of the scientific process, it would be unwise to dismiss their research. It is appropriate for Christians to be skeptical of claims made by scientists who speak outside of their area of expertise. And I, I would add that's a great distinction. We firmly reject claims that science has somehow shown God does not exist or faith was mere superstition. Such claims go beyond what science is capable of investigating. We lament the times when science and medicine have been misused to perpetuate atrocities like the racist Tuskegee experiments. But Christians should listen to scientists and doctors when they speak in the area of expertise, especially when millions of lives are at stake. That's all part of the statement. We don't have time to get into all of it, but I want to ask you a little bit about this second one here. It's probably no surprise. Uh, I'm a big fan of N.T. Wright for a number of reasons, and this is now a month old or so. But uh, it's another Christian Post article, and the headline reads, N.T. Wright identifies, quote, knee-jerk reaction Christians uh, have in a response to COVID-19. So 
I'd love to I'd love to know a little bit of what maybe you've seen as some of the knee jerk. I mean, it's not really can it be considered knee jerk anymore since it's been almost six months. But like yeah. in your own experience, have you have you witnessed any of that? So the knee jerk and this is the one he's talking about, but I think it's the one because a lot of fall, a lot of it falls under this umbrella is this knee jerk reaction that that pits faith against science that says, you know, everything uh, that's coming from the scientific side of things is wrong. And then it, that trickles itself down, right? Knee jerk reactions about masks or about churches being closed saying this is why they're doing it. All of these, as opposed to going, Hey, I'm going to obviously have my faith, but I'm also going to listen to science. I'm going to listen like you just said, the experts. And so this is a fascinating conversation between NT Wright and Francis Collins. Uh, and the host is Jim Stump. Uh, and, and NT Wright says it's both fascinating and worrying that the Christian church in the United States is wary of the scientific perspective on the coronavirus. And again, kind of off that last article, uh, that's, uh, that's getting us into trouble. It, it gets, keeps us just kind of running down different rabbit trails. And, and I think this is an important call about saying, no, uh, the science is an important element of that. It's not a non-Christian endeavor and we can debate things, but to just kind of say science is bad, uh, is, is just not a wise, uh, a wise move going forward here. Well, and Wright actually argues in this article that the United States is experiencing the effects of the 1925 Scopes monkey trial, which centered on a Tennessee science teacher who was accused of violating a state law, banning the teacher, banning the teaching of evolution. He said, you're still reaping the whirlwind from the trial in terms of people saying we of faith have to ignore science and go somewhere else, which is right now crazy. Which I don't know that I've ever actually heard <laughs> Wright use the word crazy, which leads me to Article number three, again from the Christian Post, same author, Leonardo Blair. The headline simply reads, 25% of Americans believe that there is at least some truth that COVID-19 was planned. What do you think of this one? This makes me mad because I think this is where things start to go off the rails. That whole pandemic video, it's the you and I talk weekly about conspiracy theories. And I think when you've got upwards of a quarter of the people that you're fighting this pandemic alongside in your country, who, who want to kind of say, you know what, COVID-19, uh, the Obama administration or and Dr. Fauci, they had ties to the lab and money in Wuhan and China's making this as a weapon. Like you can you can craft these things and it sounds great to put it to it, but it just it just makes me mad, man, because I these these are not ways that my mind goes. I'm not like, oh, what's what's the dark uh, what's the dark answer in the shadows over there? And and it gives people prestige. It gives people publicity. But I don't think it does us any good. Uh, and I, I, I just wish we as a nation could do a much better job of just saying, you know, what? we're going to focus on how to do this better instead of what's the next conspiracy theory to rip apart the other side to uh, use COVID against them. And quite frankly, as you and I've talked about uh, all too often, it's our Christian brothers and sisters who are dabbling uh, in these conspiracy theories as well. So not only do I not believe that they're not helpful, but I just think uh, it hurts the cause going forward. And at 25%, quite frankly, seems really high to me. That's even more disheartening. What, what do you say to the person who's listening and they've heard you say before on the show that, you know, self-identified, you're like, well, I am kind of naive. Like maybe, maybe they think for you to say that to not be looking for the dark things lurking. Like, well, that's, you already admitted it, Brian. You're, you're just maybe more trusting in that regard. I would say that's a really tough way to live is if all you think is there's a boogeyman in the corner out behind everything. Like sometimes, who knows? Maybe in the end I get proven wrong. I don't think that's going to be the case on this. But I do think uh, even even spending our energy going 
is that where this came from doesn't even help us going forward. And how do we get around this? But it just feels like this goes back to the politicization of it. Like, let's I still can't say that word. Let's uh, <laughs> let's keep talking and figure out whose fault this is so we can heap all the blame on them. And it just is it, it's it's not how we need to be spending our time. But I also think that it's just not helpful when we demonize the other side, quote unquote, so much that we would even accuse them of purposely creating a weapon uh, like COVID-19. We're not even talking about other countries. We're talking here about other administrations. Uh, I, I just think that that only divides us more and it's not helpful, especially in the time of a pandemic. So that's how I'd answer that. Well, Brian Fromm getting fired up here on The Common Good. Coming up next, Father James Martin, Why I Am Pro-Life. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi again, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place. Would not mind if you felt so inclined to subscribe, rate, and review either the podcast or the Facebook page. Give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter. Or just stand outside on your porch and yell at your neighbors that the show is worth listening to. Any of that would be helpful. The last is probably the least helpful. But uh, any engagement, any commenting on articles or sending us messages, We really do appreciate all of that. And uh, ultimately, it helps us do the show better. So if you have ideas or suggestions or people you think we should interview or articles we should interact with, all of that is most certainly fair game. And Brian and I, I think this was yesterday. What's today? Thursday? Maybe it was Tuesday. We had a a couple of conversations regarding the pro-life conversation. And my guess is that we're going to have a number more. Right. Uh, not just between now and November, but, you know, from now until eternity. I don't know. Are you familiar with Father James Martin, by the way? I am. I am okay. mainly from Twitter. And, wh- and what do you know of him based on kind of that observation? So uh, he I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, at least how he's painted. He is a uh, a Catholic priest who is pretty uh, he's pretty liberal, I would say. And uh, that's kind of he gets a lot of pushback, but he also is uh, is a magnet for, I think, a lot of Catholics who also would agree with him politically. So uh, I think that's a pretty good way to paint him, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we don't have him here to defend himself necessarily. Ooh, we should get him on. That would be fun. Uh, yeah. But for now, you, you just have the two of us. But he wrote an article. This is actually from uh, last year, January 2019. He referenced it in a more recent article. I actually liked this one more than the than the current one. And it simply reads, Father James Martin, Why I Am Pro-Life. It's pretty long. We're definitely not going to have time to get into all of it. But part of what you were just saying, Brian, about, yeah, he leans pretty left, uh, but he is Catholic, but he's progressive, but he's pro-life. And I know that even just saying those things, people are like, wait a minute, how is how is any of that even possible? I know that we're going to see continued polarization in the next couple of months mm-hmm. for sure. We were, it's already happening. So I would love for you to just kind of get us into this article, and then we'll We'll bop around a little bit and uh, react. Yeah, he begins by saying, whenever I say I'm pro-life, it always surprises some people, which always surprises me. Uh, He said one evening he was speaking over at Georgetown University or attended a conference, and he mentioned my pro-life convictions to a participant and her face registered shock. I'm so relieved to hear that, she said. Maybe because I advocate for refugees and migrants, LGBTQ people, and the environment causes usually championed by those who identify as politically progressive. Some people tell me that they wonder about the sincerity of my public comments in support of unborn children. By the same token, others with whom I share common ground on a variety of social justice issues often express discomfort, disappointment, and even anger when I use the phrase pro-life. So perhaps Mm -hmm. it would be helpful 
to explain what I mean when I say that I'm pro-life. I would invite you to consider this more as a profession of faith than as a political argument. Mm. He says, the best way of explaining my belief is this. The longer I live, the more I grow in awe of God's creative activity and in reverence of God's creation. I see God's creative activity in countless ways, but mainly in the ways that God is active in the spiritual lives of people with whom I minister. I've accompanied perhaps hundreds of people in my ministry as a spiritual director. Uh, And he says, anyway, he goes on to say in the process, I've seen firsthand how God encounters individuals in breathtakingly, sometimes nearly miraculously powerful ways. Like you said, this is going to be a really long article, but what he's going to go on to say is basically I'm pro-life, but he wants to expand that beyond just the abortion conversation, right? He says, I want to be pro-life when it comes to uh, issues of poverty, when it comes to issues of immigration, when it comes to criminal justice reform, when it comes to abortion. Uh, And that's where this becomes really difficult, because usually the term pro-life is uh, is exclusively for where do you stand on abortion? And he's saying, no, I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion, but also in other ways. And that kind of muddies the water and makes it more complex when you're talking politics. So what do you say pastorally then, Brian? And we'll get real specific here to someone who asks you in this current election, do you pastor think that someone can be a Bible believing Jesus follower and vote Democrat in this election? Yeah, I mean, you and I talked about that yesterday about the Robert Jeffers quote when Jeffers said just the other day that uh, anyone who votes Democrat is sold their soul to the devil. I would say it's so much more nuanced than that. I think Martin's getting at it here. Like my wife and I had a great conversation last night and maybe we'll touch on the article later this week or next week or something. But uh, I, I, her and I both read this article in which it was describing the platform of of the Biden-Harris ticket. And there were things in it that made me really uncomfortable, particularly around abortion. But then there's other things uh, that make me uncomfortable on the other side. And so I think to paint one is good and one is evil and one is, uh, you know, one is Christian and one is non-Christian, I think is terribly simplistic Mm. Uh, that that there are important issues and abortion might for me might be at the top of that list or near the top of that list. But that doesn't mean the other issues aren't important. And you might think that there are that the best way to fight abortion are some of the uh, more progressive policies around poverty and uh, other things. Again, you might think that, and I think that that is a legitimate conversation to have. And so to just say how this person uh, does abortion, what, how they how they answer the abortion question determines exclusively my, uh, not just my vote, but how I view everybody else's vote, I think is unfair. And so, no, I don't believe, I certainly believe you can be a passionate Christ follower and come down on the conclusion of I'm going to vote Democrat. And I know a lot of people don't believe that, but I, I certainly do. And I, you know who else I know believes that you. <laughs> <laughs> Why, Brian, what do you mean by that? Actually, I found this quote and I imagine somebody might find some comfort in this. If they're feeling a bit squirmish right now, he says, I cannot deny though that I see the child in the womb from the moment of his or her conception as a creation of God deserving of our respect, protection, and love. And that might already be blowing some people's minds. Like, I didn't know that someone who leans left or progressive could even believe yep. that. That's part of my point. We've created this this yes. party distinction and a chasm so wide that in some respects, we can't even fathom someone who would, quote, lean left and still feel this way about the unborn. And that's a 
problem, I think. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, we can tackle it in a nine minute segment here on a radio show. But it is. And again, it's long. I would encourage you to go read the whole thing, even if you're not Catholic, even if you don't really care about some of the topics he's addressing here. It's well written. And it's someone who I believe has a relationship with Jesus and maybe lands differently in areas than some people listening. But it's we got it. We got to start somewhere. There's another article we don't have time to get into now, but it was out of the Harvard Political Review. And it's sort of challenging some of what you were saying there, Brian. And it says Christians should rethink how they vote. And it kind of walks through again. And Harvard probably makes some predictable conclusions for some. And people might not ever read it simply because it comes from Harvard. But what what is like some practical ways you think? And I know that we only have like a minute or so between now and November for us to to do just that, to engage in dialogue around topics that makes our blood boil. How, how do we do that better? Yeah, I just think, A, we need to personally educate ourselves. Don't just listen yeah. to your echo chambers. Don't just go, what do they believe about Roe versus Wade? That's a hugely important deal. Yeah. But but really educate yourself about the Republican platform and how you've seen the Trump administration work over the last three and a half years. Educate yourself about the Democratic platform. Get to know the policies and then wrestle with them. Okay, if I'm pro-life from womb all the way to tomb, what does that mean that I believe about, you know, uh, abortion, about immigration, about economy and tax cuts and whatever else it may be. And, and answer those questions for yourself instead of going, I'm red, I'm blue, right? I'm donkey, I'm elephant. Like go and have some more nuance and come to those conclusions. Read people that might make you uncomfortable. Have conversations with people that don't agree with you. Uh, and then I think you're going to come out better on the other side. But instead, like you and I talk about often, we end up in our echo chambers. We end up just having kind of like the headlines of, oh, they believe this, they believe that, and it doesn't do us any good. And so that's why I think this article uh, from a guy who probably disagrees, I probably disagree with a lot of things that he believes, but it doesn't matter. Like he is getting at it from the right spot. Hmm. And I think we don't have to go at motives and go, oh, he can't be a, he can't be a priest if he actually might vote Democrat. Like that's not helpful. But read it and go, how does he get to where he's at and, and allow it? You know, we, we got to allow ourselves to be challenged and to think uh, rather than just go, well, that's my that's my blind allegiance to the red party or the blue party. Right. Yep. That's well said, man. And I had a feeling this one was going to get a little heavy. So I uh, I put a segment here in that's going to be a good <laughs> deal more lighthearted. Science says the sooner you put up your Christmas decorations, the happier you'll be. No one will be surprised that I disagree with that entirely, but that's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. His name is Brian Fromm. My name is Ian Simpkins. See, I did it in reverse that time. You did. Pretty, pretty fancy, and I sweated through it the entire time. You change any of that up, it really messes with your brain, doesn't it? Oh. I, of all the people who should be answering that question, it's me who says the exact same thing when we come back every time. <laughs> That's not totally true. You've tried to change it up a little bit. And it messes with me every time. Does it? No, I <laughs> I have to say Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins, and I can flow into the story. <laughs> we should we should ask people to submit like different ways for us to come back from the break yeah. for like an entire <laughs> week and we're obligated. We'll like we'll type them up and we'll make it like a grab bag. And that's how we're going to get back into the segment based on uh, entries from from people listening. That would be terrifying. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to talk about something and I'm probably going to make some enemies on this one because I do not. My opinion is not a popular one on the matter, but we're going for it anyway. It's from a very reputable source called WhiskeyRiff.com. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where I saw this. It's not even a new article. It's from November 
says, science says the sooner you put up your Christmas decorations, the happier you'll be. The very next line, though, says, so apparently listening to Christmas music too early is bad for your health, but decorating too early is good for it. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about this sham scientific research? I This is you and I have disagreed about avocados. We've disagreed about cookies. We've disagreed with a lot of stuff. We're going to agree with this because I am yes. a. I'm a hard and fast, keep the Christmas decorations off your house until we've put away Thanksgiving. Yes. Let us put away Thanksgiving, and then you can pull them out. I get mad, and uh, yeah, you and I are going to agree with this. So let's see if this study sways us at all. Let me read some of it. It says, according to a study from clinical psychologist Linda Blair. Uh, Allegedly. Isn't Linda Blair Wonder Woman, or am I completely wrong on this? Or is that <laughs> you're going to tell me you've never read any Lord of the Rings, but you know at the drop of a hat, the name of <laughs> I could Wonder be wrong, Woman? Though. I might be wrong. <laughs> the fact that you think you might be right is un- unfortunate. <laughs> she says the constant barrage of Christmas tunes too early in the season forces people to remember all the things they have to do before the holiday, and they get angry throughout the entire. That's holiday. not what it says, but I'll allow it. Thank you. I get it. You start playing Jingle Bells in September, and I'll be the first one to give you a smack upside the head. <laughs> what, is, what is this article you found us? I don't know. It's not even good grammar. <laughs> but according to another study from psychotherapist Amy Amorin, decorating. Oh, was, she wasn't that never- Batgirl? <laughs> puts you in a better mood when you're putting up decorations you're thinking of happier times times with family and friends and family traditions you engaged in thinking of those happy memories stirs up happy feelings but only does it make but only does it make you happier it makes you a better person oh. altruism increases in the month of december and as people start to give more and more and donate more it makes them happy hmm <laughs> so start decorating your tree now but don't listen to any Christmas music while you do it and give to charity? Is that what I'm getting at all of this? Growing up, there was this guy in town that left his Christmas lights up all year. Not only did he leave them on his house, he turned them on. <laughs> he was happier than a clam, though. Honestly, I think I have a simple reasoning that can boil down all of this psychoanalytical mumbo-jumbo. Uh, lights are pretty, and Christmas music stinks. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Again, all right. So this was written in November... This was not even probably a wise choice for me to put this in the show today because it's I not, like it. It's not timely at all. Here's let me just for a second give you my perspective because every time that I share it, people's accusation is, "Why do you hate Christmas?" I'm like, "I love Christmas in its rightful place." You already kind of teased it up. I think the joy of Christmas is so much more deeply appreciated once we've. Once we've adequately rested in the Thanksgiving and gratitude of Thanksgiving, when we skip over that, like that's what drives me nuts is that, you know, we'll sit at a table on a Thursday giving thanks for all that we have. And then at least before all of this, we would then wait in line for seven hours to buy more stuff. You're like that that juxtaposition is so maddening to me. But I will say this is a this is a conversation we've had around the office a number of times. And some people say, but I just like it. And I think. All right, I'm not so much a curmudgeon that I'm gonna in any way be upset that someone else just wants to do it. But for like, for me and my and now I think my wife is more certainly on the decorate early camp, and uh, I've had to I've had to be a little bit less of a Scrooge in that regard. I'm like, okay, let's uh, we can put up some of it. Can we kind of come to an agreement and not go full fledged rocking around the Christmas tree twenty four seven? Like, can we yeah. like saving it the sacred? And some people are like. Oh, we we refuse to even start until Advent. 
like until until the first Sunday of Advent, it is too soon. But they'll mm-hmm. they'll continue to play, you know, all the way to Epiphany, which is the other side of this. December twenty sixth, and people are like done with it. And I'm always like, Christmas isn't done yet. There's this whole other thing following December twenty fifth that like in the West here we like never talk about and certainly don't celebrate. So that's a little bit of my rant. I'll I'll give the mic to you now. So I, uh, it's funny, my wife and I tend to agree with when Christmas stuff goes up. I don't want it before Thanksgiving and, uh, I, I, the hill that I'm willing to die on, uh, I get, I get your theological reasons for keeping the tree up by new year's. I'm done with it. (laughs) Oh, really? Whereas my wife likes to keep it up. She's like, no, let's keep it up for a little bit longer. I'm like, nope, get it down. And she usually wins that argument. Uh, but it Wait, is, it's uh, not that much longer to get to epiphany though, Brian, like it would be, it would be the Orthodox yeah. thing to do. I would argue yeah. it would be, it would be <laughs> the gospel honoring thing to do uh, this year. I, you've, you've, you've got me, uh, if, if, if it's theological, I'll, I'll go with it on that. I, one, know, but- I know Marcus Brown would be with me on this one. That's a very Anglican way yeah. of celebrating. So no yeah, you got a lot of support. And, and back to her original reasoning here about, <laughs> you know what? Christmas lights make us happier. You know what else makes me happy? is uh is trick-or-treating i love halloween i love trick-or-treating but it doesn't mean that today i can go knock on my neighbor's door and ask him for candy <laughs> that's not no that's apples yep. and oranges brian first off i didn't realize you were a satanist i'll pray for you second <laughs> you know, secondly, I, <laughs> I love halloween <laughs> uh, i did actually have a plan to do that once in high school to like get my friends and dress up in costumes and go like two days after Halloween and just pretend that we got our calendars mixed up or something. Uh, it, it's not that funny of a, of an idea as indicated by your lack of laughter, but I, no, it's I, funny. I get sort of what you're saying. And I will, I will also confess, I guess it's not really a confession. It's more like uh, throwing my parents under the bus. We were the family for a long time that kept the lights up year round. We didn't plug them in, but they'd be like wrapped around our tree. One year we left for a week vacation and we came back and our next door neighbor had taken them all down and left them coiled on our porch. And we were like, oh, okay. All right. Maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be that family anymore. But I like, I like the lights. Again, ironically, I don't decorate the outside of our house all that much. Do you, are you a big Clark Griswold decorate? No, 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 no. I do decorate the outside of our house, uh, but, but not a lot. And here's the deal. I would also say if you're a person out there, who I don't know where this tradition started. It's not even a tradition where this new thing started, like where people put out lights for Halloween. Like it's a weird deal. Like Christmas are the only time for lights started after Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm, well, I don't I'm think be- I agree with you on that one. I just like lights. I think it makes the neighborhood look magical. Okay. Okay. Uh, let me do clear one thing up because I was very wrong. I was close. Wonder Woman, not Linda Blair, Linda Carter. Linda Carter was the first Wonder Woman. And so I did went to Wikipedia for Linda Blair. She was an actress or is an actress best known for you. Do you, you know what uh, Linda Blair was best known for? What? The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, tomato, tomato, right? As someone who loves Halloween, it's it's understandable that you would hold on to a name like that. So I was close. Linda, Linda played Wonder Woman, but it was Linda Carter, not uh. Linda Blair. But uh, people, please keep, please keep all things Christmas till after Thanksgiving. That's the takeaway. <laughs> oh, see, that wasn't even going to be my takeaway. I was going to say this is my confession, but ultimately, if it makes you happy to play some music or put lights up, I mean, life's too short. Yeah. Go ahead, and make yourself happy. That's fine. I'm okay with that. We needed just a bit of a break, but we're going to end on eh, not a heavy note, a more serious one though. I really, really love this discussion. It's ethics. 
for the digital age. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Or maybe you never left and you've just been sitting here waiting with bated breath. Either way, super glad that you are here. And uh, if you're podcasting us, if you wouldn't mind, just hit that subscribe button, that rate button, and then type up just the teensiest of reviews. That would help us out a whole ton. You can also do that on the Facebook page. People maybe don't realize that. But if you actually like the page and then give it a rating and then leave just some kind of review, even just like a thumbs up emoji. Now I'm starting to sound desperate. Any of that helps us out, though. All I'm saying is every share, every like, every post, every tweet, all of that does help us out. And we're super grateful for all of you who are not not only you've already done it, but you're doing it consistently. And uh, we are really, really grateful for all of that. Uh, Brian Fromm and I, we've talked about. Not really. I don't know that we've called it digital ethics before, but this is something that we've been talking about since the beginning of the show, how we engage with social media, how technology is forming us. These are questions that I think are really fascinating, but all the more now that I think that our digital use is at, I think it's safe to say an all time high, like we're yeah. we're forced to have meetings via some kind of digital video platform and we're on our phones a whole lot more. It's it's a very strange time to be alive, and so I found this this article from the Gospel Coalition to be to be pretty fascinating. It's written by Jason Thacker and it says, "Ethics for the digital age: defining and pursuing the good for our good." What is going on with this article? Yeah, let me just read what he has to say here at the Gospel Coalition. He says, "A friend recently tweeted that she believes ethics to be an impossibility." Uh, as she unpacked what she meant, I realized this attitude towards ethics is shared by many, especially in the digital age, that with the rise of sophisticated modern technology, such as artificial intelligence, facial recognition, bioengineering, and social media, our society will increasingly question what's moral or immoral, as well as how we might pursue an ethical life. Mm. Yet these definitions are often based on what seems right in the moment, not on an ethical framework. Between Google's AI principles, U.S. Department of Defense's recently adopted guidelines regarding military use of technology, uh, and the EU, the European Union's proposal for an ethical framework for technology, our world is longing for direction in addressing complicated and life-altering technologies in a way that's good, fair, applicable, and ethical. Uh, What do you think of that statement there, that our world is longing for direction in addressing complicated and life-altering technologies in a way that's good, fair, applicable, and ethical? I think it's longing for it, although I don't know that necessarily everyone would be able to articulate it that way. I think part of what – remember when this all started? We read an article. I think the headline was something like, that feeling that you're feeling is called grief. And you and I both read it and we're like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It was something that we were feeling. But we didn't like have language for it yet or no one had you know illuminated like what really was going on. I think this longing is there. But for some of us, we're, it's, we're sort of back to business as usual or this is our new usual. So we're sort of if we're pedal to the metal people, we're maybe not taking time to actually pause and reflect and assess like, oh, OK, so I'm on my computer a whole lot more than I was six months ago. How's that affecting my physiology, my eyes, my soul, like all those things are, they require intentional contemplation, I think. But all that to say, I, I do i do think that uh, the world in general is longing for some kind of direction here. Yeah, Thacker goes on to say, ethical principles often focus on fairness as a major objective. Fairness, however, is an extremely vague concept, one that can be misused and abused to prize one group over another, even to silence positions outside the mainstream of our society. In our digital age, 
Society trades conviction and a grounded ethic for what I call fashion ethics. Ethics defined by what is popular or what might impress others. Mm. Mm. We take ethical stances based on what will put us in uh, in the, quote, in crowd. We claim one form of injustice is wrong, but another is okay because they are the wrong type of people. We proclaim our enemies are on the wrong side of history as we scramble to curry favor from a particular voting block. Such ethical formations are marked by a desire for notoriety and influence rather than distinguishing right from wrong. That's a lot. That's a mouthful right there. But I like that term fashion ethics uh, about because you do feel this sometimes that people are kind of feeling like which way is the wind blowing and and then taking their stances there. And and so he's kind of calling that into question here. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's not a term that I've heard, but the way he describes it, I'm almost like, oh, that's probably a lot of the ethics that we see, is, especially in sort of a, a social media reality, which brings me to number two, technology ethics. Influenced by the rise of postmodernism, our society has become profoundly relativistic when it comes to ethics and religion in particular. We're open to people having their own views regarding ethics and morality. What's good is what we ultimately want in life. It feels good. It must be true. If we think it's true, it must be good. There's a subtle irony in this relativism when we consider modern empirical research and science. Our society isn't postmodern when it comes to technology and the sciences. We pursue hard facts with the scientific method. We believe in unchanging truth regarding how the world works, but this objectivity doesn't invade our ethics and moral understanding of the world. We're at an interesting turning point regarding technology and ethics since our technological developments are based in a modern framework while our ethics are based in a postmodern framework. That is brilliant i believe this is why there's so much confusion about ethics in our digital age we've become so enamored with what others think and with individualistic versions of truth that we struggle to address technological developments as technology continues to affect every part of our lives we can't depend on vague generalities to make our ethical decisions our dignity and that of our neighbors is at stake uh i want to keep going but i want to ask what you think so far I, that that line that you highlighted is is a pretty unbelievable one that we are uh, the technology has just added uh, this huge layer right now and that we're struggling to figure it out how to um, differentiate and and like he's talking about to our ethics within our tech technology I think this is not something I've really thought of it's again that's why I love doing the show to see these articles because then often they'll put words to stuff like you said we're feeling and then go oh. Yep, that's it. So, uh, yeah, no, I think he's right on. Why don't you finish this off? He says, take, for example, the first of Google's recent AI principles, quote, be socially beneficial. This sounds like a laudable goal, but if you take a closer look, it's fairly ambiguous. What does it mean to be beneficial? What if my definition of beneficial differs from yours? Mm -hmm. Who's going to benefit, the majority or the minority? Who decides? Who decides who decides? As you read (laughs) their explanation, it becomes clear a form of utilitarianism is framing their ethics. And then it quotes from this. It says, as we consider potential development and use of AI technologies, we will take into account a broad range of social and economic factors and will proceed where we believe that the overall likely benefits substantially exceed the foreseeable risks and downsides. It's clear that Google is seeking what brings about the most, quote, good in society based on a certain segment of people or the company itself. But as we all know, every person exhibits bias or discrimination in some way due to sinfulness and pride. While Google has every right to pursue this course of action as they develop this powerful AI technology, the public also has the right to push back on vague utilitarian arguments. There is a whole Mm. bunch here. I kind of want to get to, I don't even think we have time to read all this. He offers a better way. Do you want to read some of that section there to kind of (laughs) offer, offer some hope as we wrap up the show? 
Yeah, absolutely. He says, as Christians, our ethical decision making can't be tied to the prevailing attitudes of certain elites, the in crowd or the, quote, right side of history. Not only does the idea of fashion ethics render our belief in God moot, it also reveals what we really care about ourselves. Underneath the calls for fairness or selfishness and pride, do we care more about what people will say about us in this life or what God will in the next? Mm. Uh, God summons us to be something greater than ourselves. Love of him and neighbor, regardless of what others may think of us for our or our beliefs, Christian truth and ethical formation can be developed and deployed in ways that help us honor these two great commandments. And he's going to go on to keep talking about, but I thought framing it around love of God and love of neighbor, as opposed to how does it make me look or what do people think of me, I think is powerful. And it's a good reminder as we close the show, our calling in life, uh, love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, love our Lord with all that we have. I think that's a good reminder here. And it's something too, that is easy to forget, you know, when we're heated online mm-hmm. or someone posts something that we don't like, it is easy to, I think to jump down people's throats or to post a meme in the name of being snarky or one upping or mic dropping or hot takes all of that. I don't think any of that is inherently evil, but I think what he's getting at here is as Christ followers, you know, if we claim that God is King, he's creator over the cosmos and everything, that he knit all of us together in our mother's womb and that we have a, a responsibility to keep dignity at the forefront of how we engage with these things, even if we disagree with the methodology or the conclusion. Even yeah. like this has to be a priority and it's going to become, I think, increasingly difficult to do that, both with the impending election, but also with an increase in just sort of this digital reality that we all find ourselves in. All that to say, that's on the Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. And that concludes our show for today. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. And you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.